from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Scott Tyler. Scott is a Native American who grew up on the Macaw Indian Reservation in Washington State. His mother became a Baha'i when Scott was very young, so Scott grew up as a Baha'i. Scott went to college and got his degree in museology. He helped establish a museum at the Macaw Reservation. After finishing the project, he realized he wanted to be a doctor, so he went back to school and got his medical degree. He is now a family physician. I started the interview by asking Scott where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up on the Macaw Indian Reservation. It was uh, in a very rural setting. At the time when I was growing up, we had open range in the village, which meant horses and cows were roaming free. In the 1950s, most of the income was logging and fishing. And then there was a small tribal government, and then there was a local school. So in general, people were poor, but they were able to catch fish and and get jobs. It was probably the typical, if there is such thing, typical American Indian reservation, mm-hmm. small town. So you're Native American? I am a member of the Macaw tribe. Okay. That's correct. What was religious life like growing up? It was, I would say, a mixed bag, so to speak, because in the village, uh, most people were Christians. When I was younger, we attended the, or we went to the Presbyterian Church. That's where my cousins went. But also in the village, there were Shakers, which is not the East Coast Shakers, but the West Coast Shakers. Shakers on the West Coast of the United States were primarily Native Americans, which combined Christianity and Native American beliefs. And there were bits of our traditional religion tied to songs and dances and the things people believed in. We had quite, uh, I would say, active spiritual life going on, meaning the trees had some spiritual significance and animals. And in a way, everything was changing as people became more and more acculturated. So you mentioned the Shakers. Now, the Shakers in the West had no relationship with the Shakers in the East? Correct. Shakers on the West Coast, they got their name because they would shake bells in their services and maybe go into trances and shake. And the ones here on the West Coast, 
combined Christianity and their traditional beliefs with a messianic movement expectation, meaning uh, they were waiting for the return of Christ. He would come back and save people, and their teachings were to give up traditional Indian beliefs and become Christians. In my understanding, they fused both systems, the native and the Christian, together. They were spread out the whole, uh, pretty much part of British Columbia, Canada, Washington, into Idaho, uh, into Oregon, and some in Northern California. That's the spread of the Shaker Indian religion. So you said that in your community, the people were becoming more acculturated as time went on. When did you start noticing that as you were growing up? I believe it's a process. So when I was growing up, we did not speak the Macaw Indian language, but my father spoke only Macaw when he was young. By the time I was born, there were virtually no younger people speaking Macaw, and I was born in the 1950s. Mostly everybody had converted to Christianity. The traditional Indian organizations which were, in our area, primarily religious and ceremonial. They were replaced by, under the Indian Reorganization Act, they would elect a tribal council in our reservation, which is five members elected, various terms. People were, I would say, relying less and less on their traditional native spirituality, traditional way of running things and then learning new methods and modes and a new language from the uh, greater society or from the American society. Native Americans became citizens of the United States in 1924. So before that time, we were not considered citizens of the United States. Did you stay in the Macau Reservation until you finished high school? We moved around. One other thing, when I was growing up, some members of a strange faith moved to our little town in the 1950s. And this was the Baha'i faith. The husband worked as a civil engineer on a military base. And about six months later, my mother joined. So she became a follower of the Baha'i faith. So religiously, we grew up learning about the Baha'i faith, learning prayers, such as there was a children's prayer, Oh God, Guide Me, that I learned when I was younger. As a consequence, new things were always being introduced to the Macaw tribe, and the Baha'i faith was one of those things. Now, how old were you, Scott, when your mother became a Baha'i? I believe probably three or four years old, mm-hmm. maybe five. Mm-hmm. Hard to remember. All I do, I do remember learning Baha'i prayers. So that was a new thing, something I grew up with. Did your father become a Baha'i? He actually became a Baha'i maybe five years later mm-hmm. after my mother did. We had moved from the Macaw Reservation 
to the housing projects in Seattle. When we were in the housing projects, he joined the Baha'i Faith, and then we lived in Seattle until I was in the fifth grade. Then we moved to Idaho on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation, because my dad had gotten a job with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He was working in land management. And then from the Nez Perce Indian Reservation, once I was in the ninth grade, we moved back to the Makah Indian Reservation in Washington, where I graduated from high school in Nia Bay, which is back to the same little town I grew up in. Now, why did your family leave the Macau Reservation to go to Seattle? I believe work and education. My father went there. He uh, started attending a small business college and got a working on a two-year degree. And then he got this job in Idaho, and then we moved to Idaho. It was probably primarily, I understand, for education and employment. What was your extended family's reaction to your mother becoming a Baha'i and raising her kids as Baha'is? Extended family did react with some opposition and you know, reticence. Being primarily Christians and primarily fundamentalists of Christian belief, they were afraid. Afraid my mother was, as well as the children, we're going to be punished by God, sent to hell. My aunt outright told us that we would be going to hell. Also, lost, too, because they had a family member who wasn't going to the same church. So typically, the churches, the whole family would go, would be a member of one church. I'm sure they felt like the family was breaking up. That really did continue for most of our, our lives. And my mother was actually half German and half Canadian Indian. Her father was a Lutheran, and her mother was really 100% native traditional belief, believing that everything had spirits. You might say uh, it's called animism, where everything has spirits, rocks, trees, animals. Her mother did not oppose her belief. Her father, he was supportive. Now, before your mother became a Baha'i, was she a very religious woman? She actually was. She had gone through a search where she studied with Mormons and she studied with Christian groups in the uh, Tacoma area went to um, the revivals. At the time she was hearing about the faith, she was interested in going to an Oral Roberts revival in Seattle. At that time she asked the Baha'i lady, what do you think about faith healing? And she said, well, you can get healed spiritually. If you sincerely pray for forgiveness, you'll be forgiven and you can be healed spiritually. She was investigating, but a very sincere Christian. She specifically quotes Bible lines where uh, she 
remember that Christ said, I am with you always, so fear not. Fear not, for I am with you always. So she had kept that in her heart since she was about in her teens, which was when her sister joined Christianity. So this was a source of protection and strength for her all the way up until even now, and it helped her through her investigation of the Baha'i faith. She was a very religious lady, but also seeking. So you came back to the Macau Reservation to uh finish school, and you finished school there? Finished school. My dad got a job there for Mm -hmm. the Travel Council and as a community action program director, and he worked in health administration, and I graduated from high school in 1972. What did you do after high school? After high school, I went to the University of Washington, got a degree in museology, which would be museum exhibits and display design, and with special emphasis on American Indian studies. At that time, I had also been interested in medicine, but I hadn't pursued it. Got my museology degree and worked within that field for a while. And Scott, what generated the interest in museology? I believe it was the path of least resistance in the sense that I was very interested in preserving my own culture, interested in preserving our own language, the Macaw language, and Indian art and reservation economics. So a part of this degree was a background in American Indian studies and then becoming part of the museology program at the University of Washington was a way to apply that in a a job-oriented fashion, meaning I could work in a museum. The history behind this is there was an archaeological dig on the, it's called the Ozet, O-Z-E-T-T-E, Indian Reservation. The Ozet Indian Reservation was actually the southernmost group of Macaw Indians. So there was an archaeological dig there, and the Macaw tribe wanted to keep all the artifacts. So in order to keep the artifacts, they had to have trained museum personnel. And the University of Washington had a program at the Burke Museum, which is on campus. They said, well, we'll train everybody, and then you you can keep the artifacts. So they made an agreement with the Washington State University, which did the dig to return the artifacts to the Macaw Indian Reservation, along with the training of Macaw personnel at the University of Washington in Seattle. So there was five of us who went to this program. We designed a museum for the Macaw Indian Reservation. It was a social and economic development grant from the federal government. So we attended the program, and we finished up built the museum, received 
over 30,000 artifacts or were given that or turned over to the Macaw tribe. When was um, your interest awakened to preserve the native culture? I would say in high school. When I was in high school, when we had moved back to the Macaw Indian Reservation, I had always been interested in art. In the high school at Mia Bay, they had a wood carving class, and it was to teach the kids how to make totem poles or various types of bowls or traditional Indian art instead of taking shop. Shop was available, too, which I did take. You know, you learn how to make gun racks and things like that and how to repair a fishing boat. So I did that, too, and my cousin was taking uh, wood carving. He says, hey, why don't you do this? And then I did that. I took the class, and I got credit for it. And then he said, well, why don't you take the Macaw language class, too? And I said, okay, I'll do that. And so when we took the Macaw language class, then we started learning Macaw Indian songs, enjoyed it. That was the interest. The high school had planted the interest. The culture itself was fairly intact in the village, meaning we had traditional dinner parties. Parties over here are called potlatches, potlatch, P-O-T-L-A-T-C-H which is a giveaway. You have a dinner and you you give gifts to people and people do their dances. So it still is going on now and it was going on when I was a teenager too. What happened after college? After college, we worked on the Macaw Museum program. I had helped implement and build a museum on the reservation. And then I decided... Uh, I'm actually interested in medicine. (laughs) (laughs) How old were you, Scott? I was uh, probably 26 or 27. Uh I thought I really, when I was younger, I had gone to the clinic, the Indian Health Clinic on the reservation, and my dad was doing health administration. I'd go in and visit with my dad, or I'd come there after high school and go to his office. I was doing paperwork, and so I'd visit with him for a few minutes. If I got injured in sports in high school, I'd go to the doctor there. When I was younger, I went to the doctor, and basically I'd hurt my shoulder, and the doctor said, well, you can wear a sling and take ibuprofen. I told myself, oh, I can do that. I can do this as a job. (laughs) And so I just always remembered that, and when I had... Once I had graduated in museology and did that work, I said, I, I really need to pursue this medicine interest. And so I went back and I did a couple of years of pre-medical sciences, and then I applied to medical school. I had set a goal. I wanted to be in medical school by the time I was, I believe I said, 29 Anyway, I was in one year earlier than my goal. (laughs) I got accepted into the University of Washington Medical School and completed it and did residency and family practice. And now I practice medicine. So you chose family practice as the arena of medicine that you wanted to focus on? Yes. 
chose family practice, although I thought about specialties. Specialties were a little harder to get into, and there's a, an emphasis on uh, primary care. You know, the west coast of the United States, the area where we live, which includes Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho, and Wyoming, the University of Washington is the only medical school. So it's one quarter of the land mass of the United States, and it's one-tenth of the population. So the population is very spread out, and in this area, family practice, because of the rural setting and the sparseness of the population, that somebody who knows how to do a little bit of everything, the, those physicians are much needed. So I ended up pursuing family practice. Mm-hmm. And I worked on the, again, after I finished my residency training, then I went to the Nez Perce Indian Reservation for four years and worked there as a family physician. And what was that like? It was good. Most of the people thought I was a student. They're used to getting maybe residents or medical students rotating through their clinic, but I was actually had finished residency and was board certified I think generally people were very respectful of the physicians, although sometimes the Indian Health Service organization was a little dysfunctional. After those four years, what did you do? Then I stayed locally. I worked in the local little town, Lewiston, Idaho, which is uh, one mile off the reservation, although you have to go 20 miles from the little town where I was working into Lewiston. But the reservation goes right up to the city limits of Lewiston, Idaho. And I worked there for another three years in a local practice and then moved over to the Seattle area. I did family practice there, too. What were the circumstances that had you switch from the clinic in the reservation to a local office outside the reservation? I think I was mostly tired of working for the federal government and tired of the uh, Indian Health Service, feeling that sometimes there was challenges working there. And I could give you an example. For instance, let's say I'm sewing up somebody who has a laceration on their head. Most Native Americans have black hair, black straight hair, or, you know, variations on the, the dark hair color. If you sewed somebody up, it's difficult to do if the suture you're using is black, too, because you sew somebody's head, and now you have to find your stitch, your suture, to tie a knot in a sea of black hair. To make it easier... They have bright blue suture, but we couldn't get it because it's blue is expensive. For some reason, we could never get the blue suture. They didn't buy it in bulk. So it made a jo- job challenging. Everywhere else, we, we, we could get blue suture or we could get red suture. And they're, they're plastic, monofilament, sterile, everything's the same. But if you change the color, it makes my work easy. We couldn't do that. Another example would be I was working during the period of the Desert Storm 
or shortly thereafter, we would get supplies from Desert Storm. It's the old military supplies. Everything needs to be packed so that sand would not get in them, but they were hard to open. The old military supplies were sent to us, and then it was impossible to open these sterile packages of gauze without contaminating them. It was frustrating. Another example, we had an old, old EKG machine, and we had a contract to have EKGs interpreted, and then somebody decided, well, we need new EKG machines. And somebody in the area office, which would be like Oregon, they wrote up standards and specifications to get EKG machines for all the clinics. So it's a population maybe of 100 to 120,000 Indians and all the little clinics. So somebody wrote the specifications, then they put it up for bid, and somebody bid, of course, the, the lowest bidder got the contract, and he followed all the specifications. They took away our EKG machines and gave us a bunch of old beat-up ones that were worse than the ones we had. That's but what... see, they followed the specifications. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that happened. So those, those sorts of things, it, it just was frustrating because we'd go from one crisis to another. So... It was just part of the dysfunction of the organization itself. I liked the tribe, Indian Health Service, was, which was a branch of the public health service. It had lots of good things, but I was tired of working for it. If you wanted a new medication for your patient, it was a process where if this new medication was only used at one clinic, then nobody got it. So there had to be enough time where use of a medicine would infiltrate into all of the little Indian Health Service clinics. Then the area office would buy it. So it was a long process to get new medications. So I figured let's try out and see what the uh, so-called other health system, the free enterprise health system, and so then I moved to Lewiston. And some of my patients followed me there. But economically, it was not real good for them because then they'd have to pay for the care and they were used to having their own Indian Health Service clinic. Several years after I left, then the tribal government itself took over management of the clinic, which is what many tribes were doing. From what I know, they're probably doing better. I've heard they're doing better. Yeah, I was going to ask, there's definitely a trade-off between a for-profit system, but then people have to pay for the medical care versus a public system where it's free, but then you have the cost-cutting measures of the institution impacting the, the quality of care that you can provide. But it sounds like that maybe once the tribal council took over responsibility for the clinic, might have been run better? I think generally so. 
that's probably the case in most tribal clinics. At least the feeling of having local control and tribal sovereignty that the tribes themselves feel positive about, you could say, self-determination or they're making the decisions. That may not always be true, because the smaller the clinic and the further away it is, they may or may not benefit from losing the federal government control. And I think generally there's a, there's a move to shift care out of the northwest down to the southwest. So the northwestern tribes are maybe supplementing what they do with gambling income. There's that process. The tribes are having some economic growth and, I don't know if you could say stability, from gambling operations. They're able to get that money and build a new clinic, mm-hmm. whereas if they did it with the government, then it would take a long time to go through the federal budget process and convincing the federal government they need a new clinic, etc. So they're able to do things faster themselves and generally have prettier buildings, and then they still have to work with retaining their professional staff. So you were practicing in the Lewiston area for, you said, four or five years? Actually, three years, yeah. Mm-hmm. So four years on the reservation, and then three years in Lewiston, Idaho. And you enjoyed that? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, was, why was that difficult? Well, I, I enjoy the aspect because I figure, all right, now I'm on my own or I'm part of this group. Again, I felt more acutely the, the economic pull of medicine, meaning the group I was with was expanding their clinical operations and getting a larger clinic. And then they asked each of us to borrow $300,000 to help build a new clinic. So each individual physician was going to be, there was about 20, 25 of us. We were going to borrow money from the bank, 300 to 350,000 to expand our clinic. And then we would be in debt for the next 30 years. And I thought, I guess I don't want to make a 30-year commitment to live here and to have this debt. So then we decided to go. But for the most part, the medicine there was eat what you kill. I mean, that's a very sad term. But whatever money you made, that's the money you got paid. If I saw more patients, then I would make more money. And if I saw less, then I got paid less. So it's really learning the economics of a small local practice, which was okay. Uh, I liked the town. But then when it came time to to make a big economic and time commitment, I decided I'm going to move to the Seattle area. And why did you choose the Seattle area? It was a corporation that was hiring doctors. So it was a physician group of 200 physicians that was what I would call the best and the worst of corporate medicine. So now I'm in my own little practice in this area. After five years, I left that group. Mm-hmm. And then I have my own practice, my own private practice for six years now. 
And you said there was good aspects of it and bad aspects. What were the good aspects of the corporate medicine? The benefits. When you work for a, let's say, it's a sizable group, 200 doctors, a physician group. So this is like an HMO, or, or is it just a private physician? It, it was not an HMO. Mm, group right. Health would be like an HMO. Mm. It, it was a, an organized group of physicians. I'm sure it had aspects of an HMO, but what they could do, they could negotiate with the insurance company. So the good things is they had good health benefits. They had good retirement. You had three weeks of vacation that you could take three weeks off straight if you wanted to. The downside would be you had to listen to one or two of the medical directors. So the overhead was overwhelming. You know, we would see 25 to 30 patients every day. And then the first 10 patients, up to 15 patients, would go to the organization. And then after that, I would start paying for my, my own. You didn't have a steady salary then? It was a steady salary. But it was but based on Economically, the... you think, wow. I'm seeing, you know, seeing all these patients, and really the first 10 go to the organization. Uh-huh. They get 50 to 60% of whatever you see they get. So it's just that thing. Gee, I'm wondering where all this money went. Where's all this money going? Mm-hmm. This big organization with all these benefits, and we have to hire two high-paid physicians to uh, oversee what we do. And I just was feeling that, again, the overhead was too high. Mm-hmm. So now I left that. I went into my own little practice, and I see 10 patients a day, 15 a day, it's slower, but the amount of money I bring home is the same because there's just me and one other person have a small staff. The other person is my wife, who is the <laughs> office manager. Uh-huh. If we have medical records we need filed or labs and stuff, then my two girls, they put the charts away, pull charts, and they uh, file labs, and they can make phone calls and make appointments. So we try to keep everything small and relatively uh, pretty efficient. Scott, now that you are where you are in your life, is there something you haven't done yet that you would like to do? A lot of things. One is perhaps do a children's book just on some simple native myth or a story that has some native belief, something positive, and illustrate it and have a book. You know, there's these little kids' children's books like Raven Stole the Sun and Gave It to the People. There's some popular, simple stories that have come out. And so I'd be interested in seeing if there is some themes that are in native stories that could be made and illustrated for the public. Are you an illustrator? I'd like to. I, I do, yeah. I do computer graphics, and most of my art is the Northwest Coast Indian style. There's a totem pole style of art, and it's called Northwest Coast Indian art. It's very common here from 
Seattle, Washington, the whole Washington State, all the way up to Alaska. It's a style of art that is on this coast. I would like to use that medium and combine it with computer graphics and make a cute little Indian story. And the other thing, which is maybe a, a big goal, would be start a Native American medical school. I have motivation, certain motivations for doing that. I, I figure uh, it's time after 200 years of having America here, Native Americans have never had a medical school. In certain states where there was affirmative action, like California, Washington State, perhaps Texas and Florida, I can't say it's a backlash, but there is a backwards movement. The, the state actually votes against affirmative action, and that's affirmative action for minorities, racial minorities, for women and disadvantaged whites. So the state will pass a law that says we no longer believe in affirmative action, and then that will spread into the university and become institutionalized, which I would say is institutionalized racial prejudice or national prejudice, and that happened here in Washington State. A few years ago, they passed anti-affirmative action laws, and California did the same thing. So when that happens, race can't be used as a criteria for allowing people into professional programs like medicine or any other professional program at the university, race, sex, economics. So then they have to figure out other ways to let students in. And this was one of those years University of Washington did not accept any Native Americans into their medical school this year. So I don't know what happened. I think that's a backwards movement. The other thing on my plate is to start a Native American medical school, start a movement for that so that we can begin to educate I would say indigenous people, just anybody from Alaska or Siberia all the way down to the tip of the South America who is of the indigenous background to get educated, and especially in the field of medicine. Of course, you have to start out small, and I think uh, the Northwest would be a good place. In western Washington, we have 25 tribes here. So we have the small tribes of western Washington, and we probably we have a few big tribes in eastern Washington. I think we have lots of Alaskan natives and Canadian Indians moving into this area. So I think it would be a good place to start a bona fide or accredited Native American medical school. And it has not been done in the United States. There are places that have been started for Native Americans, like Howard University, I believe, originally was set up to educate American Indians, as well as Dartmouth. I'm sure they are doing a good job, but after 200 years, there is one, I think, less than one Native American physician for every 10 to 15,000 Indians. And those numbers are really worse than South Africa. South Africa has 
much better numbers and ratios of African, black African physicians relative to their population than we do in America. Although people are inherently worthy to obtain the education, it is through education that they realize they have to do it themselves. So part of it is you become worthy when you make the effort to make change. And this is where we are today. We have to grab hold of whatever opportunities exist and also make new opportunities to develop the educational potential of our tribe and, you know, of our communities. Very good. Well, I wish you luck in those endeavors. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And, Scott, thank you so much for sharing your story. All right, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Scott Tyler, a Native American who is a family practice physician in Washington State. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
These are stories of the nobility of the human spirit. Stories that are passed down from our ancestors. Stories that were told around the fire from generation to generation. And stories that live on. They live on because they remind us of who we are and remind us that we have the ability to rise up out of the darkness to escape the depression and negativity, but to take our rightful place like the eagle on the wings of knowledge. This is the story of the seven directions. It takes place long, long ago. They say, Ehani, Ga Ehani. Way at the beginning earth was made, this world, this universe was fashioned. In seven days, the Creator completed this in seven days. Now, on each day, the Creator fashioned and put in place all the powers of each direction, one at a time. He fashioned the direction of the east, and he put in place the powers. He made the sun to rise and to shine and to move over the heavens. He caused the moon to appear, and he made the morning star to become the harbinger of the new day. He created the south, the Itokahata, the place that we turn towards, the place that we journey towards after we depart this earthly life. And he placed the powers there. And he caused there to be a place 
where life ever springs fresh and verdant. And he set the powers towards the west, and he made the thunders to appear from there in the spring. And in the north, he caused the winds to come at a certain time, the winds that purify and renew everything. And then he put the spirit within this earth. On the seventh day, the Creator stood in the center of the universe, facing towards the dawning light, yet still within the pre-dawn darkness. The wilderness, the wilderness and the waste. And the waste. Shall be glad. Shall be glad for them. For them. And the desert. And the desert shall blossom. Shall blossom as the Shall see they shall see the glory, the glory of the Lord. Oh, and then the prophet Isaiah goes on to say, They shall see the light. Down with the land, and all the nation, and all the nation, from the north, the south, the east, and the west, they'll be gathered around the throne. Together up the mountain, on the king's highway, to just to behold the glory of the Lord. Establish his king. Establish his 
that beautiful in that beautiful beautiful Zion all praise This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.